Freddy Krueger here, a.k.a. Robert England, and you're listening to Horror Business. Salutations. My name is Justin Lore. And I am Liam O'Donnell. And you were listening to yet another hell-raisingly good episode of Horror Business. Horror Business. Now, why is this episode hell-raisingly good? Because today we are going to be talking about the film works of one Clive Barker. English, England's greatest export after the Smiths. I'm I'm doing. I was saying harvest is the way I, I imagine the Cenobites would say it if they ever got a chance. No, they would go. Oh no! You did the thing with the teeth. I hate that thing. Yeah, that's the literally the worst thing ever. No, these the uh, butterball is when he goes. Ah, ah, ah. No. That's disgusting. I it. I'm not saying that's not disgusting. What I'm saying is I would take the teeth. I would take that over the teeth gimmick any day, dude. Chatter is the greatest. Anyway, so we don't. When teeth clack together, it is the devil's laughter. That's the point of the fucking movie, because it's from hell. You know what I'm trying to say, though? In yeah. That it's awful, and it makes me want to die. Okay. Anyway, so we're going to be talking about two movies today. We're going to be talking about, uh, oh my god, i got to get the, the years up here, uh, 1987's Hellraiser, because why wouldn't we, and then 1990's Hell, <laughs> I almost said Hellbreed, 1990's Nightbreed. We picked these because they're, you know, based on the works of Clive Barker, The Hellbound Heart, and Cabal, and because Clive Barker directed both of these movies. So I think these two movies would represent uh, Clive Barker's uh, vision, I guess, is the the right word? Sure. Yeah, it's not a movie like uh, Candyman or Lord of Illusion that was directed by someone else who wasn't Clive Barker. Not that I have a problem with those movies, but... Oh, who directed Lord of Illusion? I didn't know he didn't direct that for some reason. I, thought I he don't did. know who directed that. Hmm. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about. But before we do that, we want to give a shout out to the Lehigh Valley's premier screen printing company, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. This episode brought to you by LVAC. The fine folks at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations can help you realize your vision for your printing needs, be it on a t shirt, sweater, hoodie, beer koozie, underwear, or foam hat. By foam hat, I mean trucker hat. And that derailed my uh, that derailed my pitch. Lord of Illusions was directed by Clive Barker. Was it, motherfucker? I am a true. I am a son of a bitch. Look, as long as you don't need Chris Reject to be straight edge, LVAC he, can meet can meet all your needs, all not, your screen printing. Not saying non Chris Reject uh, straight edge. Not needs. saying that Chris drinks on the job or is intoxicated because he doesn't. If anything else, he is nothing else. He's a professional. He's a capitalist swine, but he's a professional capitalist swine. He will excel at the job you assign him to do. His prices are reasonable. His turnaround's good. And he just does great work. I mean, you can look at you look at the stuff that Cinebooks gets printed. We got the Loud Fast Philly shirts. Yep. Um, if you go to any Chikara Pro wrestling events, you see all the, sh- the shirts that he does. The man does good work. He's been doing this longer than anyone, anyone else in the game. So go there. X-L-V-A-C-X dot com. 
When you need screen printing and you need it Ooh, right, go to, go to the guys who keep it tight. LVAC. Dot com or XL. Don't go there because it's <laughs> Las Vegas Activity Crew or whatever it is. <laughs> activity Crew. That's definitely not what it is. It's an athletic club. But how cool would it be if our crew was the Activity Activity Crew? crew. Well, what's, that's what it. What's, that's what's, what's your crew all about? Well, we do activities. That's what the LVCA was back in LVAC was back in the day. It was the Activity Crew. We, we have LA Activity Crew. I don't believe that. Ask Chris about that. It's really called the activity. Yeah, group? that's what we used to like play kickball and everything. Well, now I don't like it. They were our more. They were Easton's mortal enemies. What was Easton called? Uh, the Alliance of Fun. The Alliance of Fun is also good. You guys had the wussiest crew names. Yeah, Liam, think about who you're talking about. When I first started going hardcore shows, all the kids I was in was in a crew called the Gut Punch Crew. Yeah, that's tough. The only reason they wouldn't let me in is because uh, I didn't fight. So the Gut like, Punch Crew? What were they, uh, like a bootlegging crew back in the 1800s in the Five Points the, neighborhood in the, New York City? The Gut Punch Crew. Ah, uh, yes, the gut, we got Moonshine. Bill the Butcher's going to rival us today. Aww. I was like, can I have a Gut Punch Crew shirt? And they're like, why would you want a shirt? Why do you need a shirt? You're not going to get in a fight. And I'm like, no, I don't like, the I don't want to do gut that. Gut Punch Crew. Do I know anyone else in this crew? No, you don't know any Jersey people, right? You don't know the, the South Jersey traditions. You don't know about The Real Deal and Burnside. No, I don't know about The Real Deal and Burnside. Or Down for the Count. I've heard of Down for the Count. No, you have not. No, I, I'm not saying I'm familiar, but I've heard the name. All right. So anyway, enough with South Jersey, you know, early to mid '90s South Jersey hardcore. Let's let's <laughs> let, let's get back to what really matters, and that's what me and Liam have been up to recently. This is a new segment me and Liam call Spooky and Kooky. <laughs> we do not call it either no. Spooky or <laughs> Kooky. I just uh, I just came up with that. It's a little was a little riff on a. Uh, you just want to have a we you know no I don't. There's a trademark segment on Cinepunk called Wack. We can't even say. It. Don't even say because we then I will owe you royalties. <laughs> I don't want I don't want Alvarez coming down on me like a like a like a like a like a like a train engine. So we're gonna talk about some horror movies we've seen recently. Liam and I were lucky enough to go to check out our friends at the Mahoning Drive-in. Shout out to the Mahoning Drive-in. We saw they had tonight was the last night of their three day zombie fest. They've done it. This is the third year they've done it, where they just show like, you know, various zombie movies. And Liam and I went up on Friday night and saw Night of the Comet, which we were both like, holy shit, this movie's a lot better than we remember. Because when I was a kid, I was just like, this is kind of goofy. There's like a comet and... You know, there's just like, there's girls in a mall with guns. I don't like this. This isn't all that cool. Well, I think, too, I wanted it to be, when I saw it when I was younger, more of a zombie movie than it is. Yeah, yeah. There are some people affected by the comet take on zombie things, but it's not, it doesn't play that way. It's more about these female characters and about sort of a post-apocalyptic feel. And I think it's very, in that sense, this is something that people... When I was going to say it's very atmospheric, but when you say that, people think, oh, so it's boring. And that's not what I mean at all. It's just, um, it's very much about you're in the middle of goddamn LA. Yeah. And there's nothing there but clothes with sand on them. <laughs> Everyone has been turned, turned into, into sand. sand. And so I think that's more what the movie's about and less like this kind of action-packed, like there's monsters everywhere sort of thing. Well, it's also in the tradition of Romero, the real danger comes not from zombies which you see like i think two of the entire movie it's yeah. more about like other people be they marauders who are like trying to kill you or 
scientists who are trying to drain your fucking blood because they're trying to prolong their own lives. The best part about it, though, is there's two main actresses, uh, one of which went on to do other movies. The other one, I don't know. No, she didn't else. do much. And uh, they are sort of the heroines of the film. They're sassy teen ladies. Little, little uh, I don't want to say little because that's diminutive, but let's say they're they're young and sassy and very like we do what we want, we don't care, whatever. And at no point do they have to like toughen up and become hard. Like yeah. you know, like a lot of horror movies, especially ones with teenage girls, at some point they have to steal themselves and get strong. In order they have to, to take on ma- quote unquote masculine qualities. Yeah, and now you know I'm not being an essentialist. I'm just saying they have to perform a kind of masculinity. That is not about biology, but whatever, um, in order to kind of survive. And these young girls, they never stop being teens in a sense. Like, they're not that over the top with it, but they definitely are fun and sassy and whatever till the end of the movie. And that is, to me, in and of itself so unique, it makes the movie more fun. Yeah, and it's it's not like one of those things where they start out as innocent teenage teenage girls and they go through this like cycle where they become like hardened tough warriors and then they come out the other side like sassy teenage girls they maintain that like sort of like bubbly fun 80s persona throughout the whole movie and it was just really cool how like it ended and it was like they also don't get you know raped exactly yeah you know it's i mean not that like every movie every horror movie is a rape movie but in so many films like this where they're in this circumstance and there's these young attractive girls they're at least threatened with rape they're threatened with sexual violence and uh you never feel that way even when the marauders take them the marauder people are just crazy they're just crazy well they're not crazy they just don't give a fuck oh you're right i forgot yes yes. (laughs) but you know what i mean like they the the movie never or at least I didn't perceive at any point that the movie relied on uh, sexual violence for the story to move forward. Yeah, that yeah. there are other stakes going on, and I think there's a really good okie doke in the movie where you think one thing's going on, and I really was in on this one thing, and then they sort of shift gears, and you realize that's not it. What moment was that? The female scientist. Oh yes, they really yes, play yes. it out like she's a villain, and yes. then she's not. She's the only normal person. That was in actually that, whole facility. That, that was actually a really touching moment. The whole you know yeah. she was right, you are cute. Like that was really yeah. that was really nice. Um, so yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, I also uh, watched the as part of that triple feature. Uh, they also showed Rabbit, and I watched that, and that is a great movie. Yes, yeah, so we're actually going to be doing an episode on that and Shivers in a few weeks with our man. Evan Villella. Villella. So that should be looked forward to. Oh, what else? Have you seen any other horror stuff that you want to talk about? Alien Covenant. Oh, right. We need to talk about that. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm kind of torn on it. I mean, I, my hatred of Prometheus is, has been no secret over the years. I was not, I didn't really like that movie except for uh, Michael Fassbender. I didn't find that movie really all that good at all. I didn't care about any of the characters. I just didn't think it was good. Um, but Alien Covenant, in the story that it continued about uh, Fassbender's character, David, who was in Prometheus, I can now watch Prometheus and at least see it as a part of a story, an essential part of a story that I find compelling. I think the character arc of David the Android is so fascinating. Um, and it's it's less alien and more Blade Runner in the way the character is viewed, in the sense of like what is a person. Um is he real? Is he an actual? Because there's a scene in the movie where he actually forgets that he's not real. Like he literally forgets that he was created to serve. And he's like, oh no, I'm not an actual 
thing with any sense of autonomy. Like, and um, I just I just think that's amazing. And uh, I mean, the reason it was a horror movie is because this there was a, like there was the chest bursting scenes that were like difficult to watch. I mean, it wasn't like like John Hurt's scene in Alien is amazing. Like it gets me every single time I watch it. It's 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 gory. It's it's just fucking nuts, and it's legendary when it when in, in in filmmaking when it comes to like shock value. But the chest bursting scenes in this movie, when the aliens emerge, was some of the most gruesome shit I've ever seen committed to film. I and I don't mean gruesome like like Eli Roth torture porn gruesome. I mean it was just like it was what chest bursting actually is violent and like extremely fucking painful and just just it was just brutal um well i mean that that sort of violence can be used in a way that actually advances a story and creates an atmosphere and even if it's only to scare you it's done in a way like that whereas i feel like some of the tortury like gory stuff it's just an exercise in like can we do this exactly and will it make you uncomfortable this was this was just like i mean the reason i think i was okay with this was because it was like you know what's coming you've seen it all before like here is like a here's where it all started so um i mean i had my problems with it i don't really want to talk too much about what i didn't like about it um i think danny mcbride's performance in it was amazing underrated actor very underrated actor yeah um I again I can't sing enough praises to Michael Fassbender. He's he's just an amazing actor. Like anything he does is just golden. Um even the hated X-Men Apocalypse, I liked him in that. Um but uh I'm not gonna I don't want to talk about negatives because I believe in the rule of the law of thumber. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. You don't believe that because I we have believe, a podcast. I believe in the rule of thumper. We are definitely don't allowed have to have anything nice to say. Things. We spent half of the episode, last episode, talking shit on a movie. You might be right about that. Look, I haven't seen it yet, and I'm not. I, I'm not proud of that. I'm not saying it like because I don't need to. Like I want to see it, but you know, it's hard for me to get to the movies. Um, I think you should just be honest. I think you you express that you liked it a lot in certain ways, and then in other ways you didn't. Yes, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's the thing we run into is that on this show and on any show is that a lot of people have strong opinions about horror and they have strong opinions about the movies they care about. But I think there's something about horror fans where they get even more into it. You mm-hmm. know? And so <clears throat> I have a number of friends who really dislike the movie and I have another friends who really like the movie. And of those people, some are mad that people like it and some are mad that people don't like it. I just want to take a second before we go any further. I just want to give a special thanks to Amy from the final girls. Cause I know she does not like Hellraiser, but she does not get upset at people who do like Hellraiser. Yep. Because she understands that everyone has different opinions and it's See, fine. I, but you know me and I, I just want to establish this now that I'm of a mixed mind when it comes to these things. On one hand, I don't think like, I should be rude to someone or I should treat someone poorly because of their opinion on any movie per se. Yeah. But there are definitely things that like um, when someone who I think normally I agree with them disagrees with me, I kind of am curious about that and I want to know why. And then sometimes they explain themselves and I think, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes they do and I think, no, fuck that. You know? And I don't, I I guess I'm supposed to feel bad about that. Like I've had this conversation recently. Um, 
because people do have such strong opinions and fights within the film criticism community can get very intense. Some people are like, you know, really want to push this idea. Well, it's all subjective anyway, so you like it. I don't like it. It's fine. And what I don't like is the idea that because it is all subjective, which I 100% agree with. I'm not saying yeah, it's yeah. not. Um, that therefore we can't have any discussion about it. Now, granted, you might choose not to discuss it with someone because that person is an asshole. Yes. But name that. Say, you know what? I'd love to argue about this with you, but you're a dick, and I don't want to argue with you right now. Mm-hmm. Name that. But don't be like, well, it doesn't matter. Like We all have our own opinions. Like There are situations where that happens. Like If I'm like, I think this thing is so great, and someone else is like, I think it's the worst thing ever, that conversation might not go anywhere because yeah, we yeah. have no common ground at all. I'm not going to sit here and just keep telling you, but you're wrong because that's just an end. But if if I was like, you know what? I like that movie, but this doesn't work for me. And you were like, really? I thought it worked because of this reason. Then we can have that discussion. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, this whole idea of uh, I'm just not cool with people like I mean, I'm even cool. I'm even OK with someone saying I didn't like this movie or like, this record, this band, I didn't sure, like sure, this sure. because it just didn't it didn't grab me. Yeah, yeah it didn't, yeah. and I'm like, that's fine. You don't need to justify anything else after that. But one thing I can't stand is when people are like, "This is the worst movie ever." Well, what was so bad about it? It just fucking sucked. Well, how? Like, was the acting bad? Was the sure. cinematography? No, it's just shit. And it's like, all right, well, well, and there is a certain, and this is something that um, I yeah. Oh, uh, other people have talked about wanting to discuss. I know a friend of the show, John Wren, wanted to wants to come on Cinepunks and talk about this. Like, there are certain folks for whom they love mediocre film, and so they like really don't like the idea that you would like stop and think about any movie. And so you just get into that point where you're like, well, okay, well, why didn't you like it? Or okay, why did you like it so much? Yeah, they're like, I don't want to explain it. It just is what it is. It's great. Or it's not great. And I'm like, that's fine. I mean, there are definitely movies that work for me at a visceral level, and I can't very easily explain it. But I can start to... I can make an effort. Exactly. I can't tell you any movie I love, and I, I'm just like, I just like it. Like, I don't know. It's just good. I mean, you Whatever. know me. I'll talk about it. <laughs> I just... Once you get me started on like, American Werewolf of London, I'll just fucking keep talking about it until you tell me to shut up. But I do think it's worth naming that we're in this weird space where, like, on one hand, like, so something that has obviously on people's mind right now is Twin Peaks. And as we've discussed before, and we discussed it uh, a little bit, but we can, we can say now if you know that Justin doesn't like Twin Peaks, I like Twin Peaks. And as I'm noticing as this new Twin Peaks thing is going on, there's a lot of people who like, who love it. And then when you don't like it, they're like, what the fuck? Yes. But at the same time, there's the hot takers. Yeah. Then there's just as many people who are like, David Lynch's whole career is the worst thing ever, and anyone who likes David Lynch is a fucking shitbag. And, like, so uh, all that to say, on one hand, it's very important to me that we have these discussions. Like, I get it. Sometimes they go awry, and a lot of people are like, I don't even want to talk about movies or TV shows because someone's going to get mad at my opinion or whatever. Like, I get that. But I'd rather live in a world where we can have these discussions and because Justin's my friend, when he was when he first says like, "Oh, I don't like Twin Peaks," I'm like, <sighs> and he knows like, but that's how it is between us because we like know each other, yeah, and yeah, we have like a relationship. And I, granted, I don't, you know, if I'm just on Twitter and some guy just wants to like hit me up who I don't know and be like, "Yo, that thing sucks and you suck," I'm like, "Who the fuck are you?" I don't know. <laughs> Go but eat it, shit. But it, in other words, I, I want there to be a way in which we can 
disagree and talk about why we disagree and not you know be at odds about our disagreement but not pretend that we're okay like if i think something is the best you know so for example um if you know that would work for both me and justin if someone's like prince is the worst musician of all time that's a bad example it's a great example oh my god because it's a, a an example that i've seen it exists in the world i know and b i don't feel obligated to respect that opinion but I have to figure out a way to respect that person. You know, in other words, if what you want from me is for me to go, oh, do you feel that way? That's okay. No, it ain't fucking okay. On the other hand, I have to be like, okay, well, how do I deal with how that makes me feel without just being like, not only that, you don't deserve to live. <laughs> you don't deserve happiness. <laughs> it, it, you know what I mean? And And that might seem funny, but I think all of the film world and any art discussion we haven't really figured that out you know like yeah i mean i think when it comes to david lynch i'm the perfect example because i feel that since i don't like twin peaks but i love pretty much everything else david lynch has done like maholland drive is one of my favorite movies blue velvet's amazing i mean even lost highway i feel that i'm kind of like what's his face in the underworld movies he's the, he's the hybrid of a vampire and a werewolf <laughs> so he's the perfect being i'm the, yo you even like lost highway i i often say to people the only lynch i really don't like is lost Highway. really i don't like it dude oh my god i think i think lost highway falls short of mulholland drive well yeah mulholland drive is just fucking next but level. i think that's i think that when i say lost highway is trying to be mulholland drive what i mean by that is in its format like obviously it's a very different movie in its content but in its format in the sort of filmmaking he's trying to do yes he doesn't the... succeed with lost highway and lost highway is the first thing where he's trying it he's trying yes. this thing so for me it's like oh god lost highway came first right yeah okay yeah because yeah they do have the similar format where halfway through there's like the, the switch and like and it's just this whole other lynch lynch thing that i'm a I, I feel like every time I try to like explain what he's doing, that commercial used to the, the trailer for that when I see it on TV used yeah. to scare the fuck out of me. Yeah. Like the you know Robert Blake where he's like, "Oh, I'm calling you," and he's like, St "Oh, anyway, we don't need to talk about Lost Highway." All right, let me jump in really quick with uh, horror stuff. Um, I'm realizing that I didn't really say much about. I saw The Void. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't really talk about it, at least, and not you know, except for the one that we don't have, and basically. Um, I don't know. It, the, Void, super successful special effects film? Absolutely. Super unsuccessful story in that has people in it. I think you put it best in... Um just... This is also like a... a, a this is like a plug for uh, the Cinepunks podcast. Um, um, you should go listen to that because the new episode is pretty cool. Um, I think you put it best in saying that's one of the rare movies where it could have been a little bit longer. Yeah. Like, and I, I, I'm inclined to agree. Not, I don't need an explanation for what's going on. No. Like, I'm perfectly comfortable with just this, there's this weird cult that worships the Black Pyramid, whatever, but just more character development, particularly for the female doctor. Sure. I mean, even the male lead, we see the most of him, but we don't really get much explanation for who he is. Then we have this female doctor. She doesn't get to do fucking any. I mean, so so my feeling about the movie is, A, no character is complete. No character really is developed. No character really gets to do that much. I, I think it, the doctor has, it, you understand him the most, his weird motivations sure. for whatever he's doing, but he's the fucking bad guy. Like, right, right, right. But then, I'm, but then I also feel like, 
um, only the male characters have agency in any way. Yes, yes. And every female character is just there to play a role or be a, not play a role, but like sort of function in the script. Yes. Someone needs to be scared here. Someone needs to do a heel turn here. Someone needs to like scream at this moment. Someone needs to be an incubator for an interdimensional horror. Yeah. And so uh, in that sense, it, it was very frustrating um, as a film because it, it was very limited and it's how it told the story. And there's aspects of the story that are amazing. I think some people didn't like all of the special effects, but uh, that, I was okay if with If you it. like icky shit, go see this movie. Yeah, it's so I, I think if you're willing to put up with and you go in knowing that the story is not everything it could be, but you just want to see all the special effects, I think it's totally worth it. If you are like, you know, more interested in story and you're not so interested in just goo if you're a fucking nerd you're gonna hate this movie but if you're a cool guy like me and liam you're gonna like it a lot (laughs) i'm literally saying i don't (laughs) love this movie and you're um i'm trying to think there's any other horror stuff that i did we talk about colossal at all on this podcast so here's the thing ladies and gentlemen i'm just gonna name it because you guys don't know we actually already did this yeah that's why it's yet another hell raising episode you fucking simpleton Basically, what happened was that I lost. I lost the episode. Yes, he did. And so it's hard to remember what we discussed on the episode that actually got out, mm-hmm. and what we discussed on the episode that I lost that we're now re-recording. This is Sunday, Memorial Day, Snackman's birthday. Shout out to the Snackman, the one true god. I can't believe I just I just flubbed the date. It's it's May twenty eighth, which I should know because this is today's my wedding anniversary. Holy fuck! Remember. I got married a year ago. I mean, I didn't really. I got married legally like three years ago. But yeah. we finally had a wedding a year ago. Oh, today. yes, that's right. I was at that wedding. Yes, you were. So, yeah, Liam, we got a lost episode floating around out there somewhere. And by floating, it might literally be floating because it's on an SD card that I lost. So it it Literally, actually... if it's in the sewers, because there's one thing we know, everything everything floats down there. So there's just this episode around. It exists. It's a thing that just, it, it's out there. So basically, all I need to say is this. I saw Colossal. I saw it too. I really liked it. I thought it was really well done. I really liked the story. I liked um, the message that it wears on its sleeve. I liked the way that the kaiju really just functioned as a sort of a backdrop to tell the story. Yeah, this movie's not about monsters at all. No, 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 no. no. Not at all. I mean, unless you want to count um, Jason Sudeikis as a monster. I mean, but... yeah. I mean, it, it's not a kaiju movie at no, all. No, 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 no. Um, but, but the way they're used in the movie is fun. Yes. It's, it's definitely... Um, and, you know, I think I am going to go out on a limb and say Anne Hathaway is an underrated actress, has been and uh, continues to be, and she's really good in this. Yes, she's know? really good in this. I mean, don't get me wrong. Are there things that she's not great in? Yes. Like, like what? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, barring the fucking Princess Diaries or whatever. Uh, the, I think it was called Havoc, maybe, or... The movie where she ends up with these gang dudes and there's like a weird... Oh, I've never seen it. Yeah, she, uh, whatever. Uh, there's a couple movies that, that aren't that great. I don't know. I, I heard The Intern isn't very good mm. with uh, Robert De Niro. I don't know. Uh, and and a lot of people hated Les Mis. Um, to be fair, her song in Les Mis, the song, you know, is she, she plays the one character who passes away. I mean, one character. I'm sure lots of people pass away in Les Mis. But <laughs> she's the one who sings the song and her version of that song 
is the only version I want to hear ever. Like I, I kind of like Les Mis. Like I'm not a big musical person, but yeah, yeah. I think the music's okay. It's something you, if you put on, I'm not like turn this fucking shit off. <laughs> it's like oh, okay, this is fine. It's is there any song that you're like that when they put yeah, it on? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. There were a couple things at the barbecue today. I was like, what the fuck is? That? Oh my god. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. Liam and I went to a barbecue. It was very nice. So the point is, is that her version of that song, you know, so the thing with the gimmick with Les Mis is that they recorded all the singing. You, they never record the singing on set. Yeah. You, you act out the movie. The way you film a musical is you act out the movie. Then you go in the studio and you record all the shit. So this dude was like, wouldn't it be better if we recorded all the voices live on set and then we just add the music later? So, which is a great idea, apparently, for Anne Hathaway. If you've seen Les Mis... Not so good a call for our man Russell Crowe. Turns out <laughs> Russell Crowe is not really a singer, so to speak. Most of that movie's bad. But I still maintain that she's good in it, and even her singing is really good. Gotcha, gotcha. Point being, Colossal was well done. It, it's funny, but it's not... It's not a comedy. It's, it's not, not, not comedy. at all how it was marketed. I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough how surprised... I mean, it's definitely... There's funny elements. I mean, there's... But all the funny elements are what you see in the trailer. Like, that trailer is like... You know how there's that like gimmick on YouTube where they'll take like a horror movie? Like, they just took Alien and they'll, they'll recut the trailer as a comedy. Or they'll recut Mrs. Doubtfire as a horror movie. This is like... The trailer feels like they took Colossal and recut it as a comedy. Well, but I think all the, all the funny moments are in Colossal are all the moments that aren't essential to the plot. Exactly. Like I feel like the reason, so for y'all who have only seen the trailer or you haven't even seen the trailer yet, basically um, the plot has some important emotional moments that if they let that go in the trailer, it would ruin, not ruin, but it would make your experience of the movie less meaningful. And so they just put all the jokes in, yeah. which makes you think, oh, this is a funny movie. It's got Jason Sudeikis in it. It's going to be funny. And then it's really not funny. It's really unsettling and fucking yeah. dark. It's really dark. So yes. I'd recommend it. I would. I, get, I, I give it, I give it, Four cups of coffee out of five, which is another imaginary rating system that I just made up. I also recently watched um, They Look Like People. Yes. That was really good. That movie was... I'm glad you... I watched it because you kept telling me. Like, yo, yo, that movie was so fucking good. I thought it was well done. I I, I liked that... You know, we, we I've discussed this recently with the idea of like, you have a movie where it's not sure what's real or what isn't real. And sometimes people prefer for the less extravagant, fantastic option. You yes. Know? This is a movie where when it's finally revealed what's going on, it was cool because I couldn't tell what I wanted. Like usually in a movie like that, you're pulling for one thing or the other. Like, I hope this is the real thing or, Ooh, I hope this isn't real. All I'm when saying, it was happening, I was kind of like, it could go either way right now. And I'm still fucking terrified. Like this that, is going that, so well. That is, that is one of the few movies I've watched over the years. Um, where I've actually covered my eyes at parts. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because yeah. this is a movie that you should go see. Yeah. Um, but there is a scene, and this isn't giving anything away, and I'll just say to Liam, the part that, like, I tried watching this movie at night, and I, I turned it off after this part because I was like, I can't fucking do this right now. It was the part where the main character is, like, looking through pictures, old pictures, and he finds that picture of him and that girl, and it's, you know, yep. different. I, uh, yeah, I fucking, I had to turn it off and I was like, yeah, this can wait till the morning because this is just, this is too much. 
Um, but yeah, go. They look like people. It's so good. I I cannot like the the end of that movie is just bonkersly terrifying. Bonkersly named after Lord Hiram Bonkersly. <laughs> the third of nottingham <laughs> all right so tonight's episode so, anyway we're going to be discussing uh the works of clive barker we're going to be talking about uh 1987's hellraiser and 1990s nightbreed now these movies um we here at the cinepunks collective we are we are not we don't believe in spoilers um except when we do like right now where i'm going to say if you haven't seen these movies stop this podcast go watch them and then come back and and and, and listen to what we have to say because um, these movies, particularly Hellraiser, are held up in such high regard for a reason. Um, they're just amazing, and um, so. And I'm not even going to sit here and pull some bullshit. Like I'm, I'm not going to call you a fucking poser or a loser or nerd. Or I mean, a, not out loud. Not out loud. I'm probably thinking, when I'm, we're off my way. I'm way thinking it right now. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. If you haven't seen Hellraiser, go see Hellraiser. Go see Hellraiser 2. And then go see Hellraiser 4 and 5 and don't watch any other Hellraiser movies. I cannot with good conscience let you recommend 4 Hellraiser 4 and 5. and 5 are great. I cannot with good conscience let you recommend 4 and 5. Fine. Let your soul guide you. <laughs> and then watch Nightbreed. We watched the director's cut, which is a little bit different than the version that has been out. But if you, I mean, if you really want to, I think, what is it, Scream Factory has the director's cut out? Yep. So you could find that. You probably actually won't be able to find the theatrical at this point anymore. Yeah, I think the DVD is out of print. I think you can stream it. But even the streaming options tend to be the director's cut now. So I don't know. I don't know. If- I, it's, it's, this, this, it's, it's not a movie where it, either cut suffers. I don't think. Anyway. I don't. I don't think so. I think. Yeah. I think if you talk to Clive Barker, he's like convinced the director's cut is some superior version. Well, but I we'll think get they... to why Clive Barker is. <laughs> we'll get there. So we're gonna take a quick break, and then we when we we get back, I sincerely hope that Liam puts the song "Midian" by Cradle of Filth in here, but he doesn't have to. I'm definitely not going to. Okay, do that. we'll be right back. Who's buried in Midian? Ain't nothing but dead folk. Somewhere, (laughs) hidden from sight, closer than you might think, is a place that's not on any map. Midian. Something's breeding there. It looks a lot like hell. But they call it home. There goes the neighborhood. They're not pretty. They're not neighborly. You'll come back now, you hear? They're not even human. But this time, they're the good guys. From the imagination of Clive Barker comes Nightbreed. You can't go down there! They have only one enemy. A beast called man, sworn to destroy the Nightbreed. Sounds like we're going head-to-head with the devil himself. And only one chance. A man. Called Boon. It's time to fight! chance that we got, got. they're armed. So am I. 
out of your deepest fears and your darkest fantasies, Clive Barker brings you a startling new breed of adventure. I won't let you down. Nightbreed. At last, the night has a hero. Outstanding. Okay, we're back. Okay, so up first is 1990s Nightbreed. We're going to talk about Hellraiser after this. But before we get to in the Nightbreed, um, let's talk about the... Let's talk about Clive Barker. I'm currently looking. Liam has on his bookshelf some Clive Barker stuff, including Cabal, which is the novella that Nightbreed is based on. Um, Liam, what was your uh, your early exposure to, to, to Mr. Barker? Which sounds like a, a really cute name for a dog. <laughs> Mr. Barker. <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I think I started with the Books of Blood. That's, yeah. I think that's where I started. And I kind of, it was at a time when I was reading a lot of horror. And um, <clears throat> I had reached a point where there just wasn't, there wasn't enough Stephen King for me. Like I had read all the Stephen King books. So you were the Frank Cotton of Stephen King. You had exhausted all earthly sensual pleasures and you you needed more. Uh, I felt as if I had. I mean, I know I hadn't. There were just certain books that I wasn't interested in that were in the Stephen King canon. We call him Steve. That I I went back to later. But at the time, I had read all the ones I thought sounded cool. Yeah. And I wanted more horror. And, you know, in that period of time, it felt like there were a lot of authors. You know, you had Clive Barker, you had Peter Straub. You had... Um, was Dean Koontz was doing... Dean Koontz. Yeah, F. Paul Wilson, he did, wrote The did, Keep. Now, did Dean Koontz and Stephen King write a book together? No, Dean Koontz and Stephen King, I don't think we get along in real life. What about... Peter what? Straub and Stephen King wrote wrote The Talisman and... Skin Trade? No, Black House, I think it was called. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I read The Talisman. Um, anyways, point is, is that I was just trying to get more horror in my life, and uh, the books of blood were easy at first they were sort of very available and then it took me a while to get to cabal i think i think i actually saw nightbreed before i read cabal or did i read cabal before i saw nightbreed i know i saw nightbreed before i saw cabal no i think i read cabal uh, this is what happened and oh i forgot that we talked about this on the lost episode (laughs) the lost episode so nightbreed came out and i consistently got it confused with sleepwalkers Consistently, Clive Barker's in Sleepwalkers, so it's fine. Is he? Yeah, he and Stephen King are in it. I've, I've actually that's I, 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 that's the that's the thing is like um, I want to say David no David Cronenberg's not in it either. No, it's just Stephen King and Clive Barker. Yeah, I, for whatever reason, I've never seen Sleepwalkers, but I in really my, in my brain it's okay. In my brain, I kind of conflated them, and uh, and I just knew the Nightbreed. You know, there's a classic poster that's on the cover of the DVD, and you know that image was in in my brain and i read cabal but i didn't know enough about nightbreed to know they were related and when i finally saw nightbreed uh, i i don't know if i was still in high school but because i so I, I started reading clive parker 
probably like middle school you know yeah yeah uh stephen king was more like grade school for me uh and then like some stuff stephen king was grade school yeah i first read it in third grade you're fucking kidding with me no you read it when you were in third grade yeah i actually read it again the copy of it i read in third grade belonged to my mom's friend annie and then she passed away i think when i was in fifth grade so i reread it again jesus christ um oh well, yeah and i talked anyone who listens to the episode i i guessed it recently on nightmare junkhead so i should plug that yes if you like hard conversations you should listen to nightmare junkhead where I, I did a guest spot and they had asked me my relationship to horror and I, so i was thinking about that as far as like books and stuff and uh yeah i um uh, my mom let me read anything she was just impressed that i was reading that's know? exactly how my parents were yeah and which is fine like, yeah, she's, yeah, yeah she's not wrong in that and i think it's fine but you know, I, I I sort of joked on Nightmare Junkhead that I would I sort of conflated horror with fantasy. That there was like different kinds of fan. I mean, in a sense, that's true. That yeah, horror yeah, yeah. is a genre. But I wasn't doing genre work as a kid. In my brain, if I read the fucking Silver Chair or if I read The Stand, I was reading the same fucking thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just one of them was like nice, and one of them was like. Ah. That's not nice. so nice yeah yeah, yeah yeah and so it didn't occur to me that what i was doing was weird that that's just people read these books adults read these books and i could read so i was going to read them so with clive barker it was pretty quickly that i was jumping into you know i think high school was when i finally got into like uh the great and secret show and everville yeah and yeah then it was magica and galilee and whatever whatever but cabal i think was pretty early on like just after books of blood i think i read books of blood and then i read um Weave World? Yes, Weave World is great. Yeah, so I think it went Books of Blood, then Weave World, and then Cabal. And Cabal is a little bit more... I mean, all, all of Clive Barker's stuff kind of fits what I was just saying in that it's horror, but it has like more fantasy elements. Like, Yeah, but Cabal has a more... I, I mean, not the... I mean, I, I, I like, to this day, like, I've read Everville. I couldn't make it the great and secret show but i couldn't tell which is weird because the great and secret show came before everville but whatever i couldn't tell you what the fuck those books were about i couldn't i couldn't sum up in five minutes what those books were about i could tell you in 30 seconds what nightbreed's about because it's a novella but it reads like a short story which is i think what i think what i like I, i'm a bigger fan of clive barker's short fiction than i am of his of, of his long works like uh i think weave world being the exception because that that book is just insanity yeah, um, I don't, I don't know why. I think he appealed a because there was a bit of that sort of fantasy aspect wrapped up into his horror. But b, I was really drawn to how like sexual all this stuff was. Oh my god, <laughs> these stories are just fucking with brief interludes of not fucking in them. But I will say that uh, Nightbreed was more in my life than than Hellraiser, and we'll talk about that, I guess, when we get to Hellraiser, but Nightbreed was more accessible. I saw Hellraiser earlier, but the first time I saw Hellraiser, I was pretty young. It just, it was so disturbing and so weird that I didn't like it and I didn't finish it, because I was like, this is just too much. Yeah, it's a completely natural reaction for a fucking kid to have to that movie. And it wasn't till it wasn't till later and I, I would see it on and off like sometimes it'd be on cable and even like in an edited version on cable i was not stoked on it you know um yeah because you know the movie's five minutes long if it's edited for tv <laughs> you know what i mean um 
but even like, I mean, it wasn't edited for HBO, but it, I occasionally would babysit at a house at HBO, and I, uh, for whatever reason, Hellraiser, it just always felt like a little too much. Hmm. Um, Interesting. It, I wonder why. And then I didn't really make it through till college, and then in college, I was like, oh wait, this is a really good movie, and. Also, when I was a kid, I hadn't sat through the whole thing of Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. So it wasn't until college I figured out that I was conflating those movies as well. Because, like, if you think about it, they're very connected. Oh, they so, totally like, are. So, like, if you've only seen pieces of each, then you could be confused as to which one you're watching. Yeah, like, it's like a fucking fever dream. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, anyways, all that to say, <clears throat> I love Clive Barker, but it took me a while to get into his directorial stuff. Um, but... Nightbreed was the first Clive Barker directed movie I got into, and then I was obsessed for a while with Lord of Illusions. And I think because when it came to reading the book, the stuff Clive Barker wrote, uh, Harry Damore, yes, became one of my favorite of his characters. He's definitely, I think, the closest thing that 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 Clive Barker has in his writing to, um, like the F. Paul Wilson repairman Jack character, like a yeah. like a hero character, yeah, because. Um, Pinhead is not a hero, and nope. I mean, even though a lot of his stories are are, are interconnected, I think Harry Demore's. I would. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't quite call him iconic, but he's definitely like um, I like the John Constantine of a uh, of the Clive Barker universe. Yep. Um, my I think my introduction to Clive Barker was probably similar to that. Just like I I got to know him because um, you know I would I would always see the name thrown around. You know, attached to Hellraiser and then uh, to, to, to Nightbreed, and that that poster of Nightbreed, I will I will always see at the movie store, um, the really iconic one where they're all standing there looking just fucking punk as hell. Yep. Um, but I got it. I got it like early in, in in his in his short fiction, like the Books of Blood, which is still my favorite stuff by him. Um, his stories just have this. His his entire fiction have this very like, it's very sexualized, but it's not like, it's not obscene or even pornographic. Um, it's very fantastic. And it's 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 it, it's it's just there's just something about the way Clive Barker writes and what he writes about that is just I mean like I love Stephen King I love Stephen King he's probably my favorite author but like Stephen King's books and his, his fiction tend to be very um not not by the book but it's not like it's explainable. Like sure. Clive Barker has written about the most insane shit ever. Like you read Down Satan, or we talked about it in our 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 uh, our, our, our full car episode, uh, in the hills, the cities. Like he just writes about the like the most insane shit. Like even Hellraiser, when you really think about the mythos behind it and everything like that, that's just fucking crazy. Like I know that Hellraiser has been like ingrained in in in, in pop culture because like back in the early nineties. Pinhead was reaching like near Freddy Krueger levels of popularity. Yeah, I mean he wasn't quite as popular as Freddy because he didn't have that like kind of pizzazz to him. Mm-hmm. But there was a minute where I mean he was in a he was in a, a Motorhead video, so it's like yeah. But I mean, because but Clive Barker's fiction is just unlike anything else out there. I mean, it's even I would say that it out fantastics Lovecraft when it comes to like the sheer fucking insanity of it. Um, but like Liam. When I first read Cabal, I had no idea that it was it was about Nightbreed. I was just like, oh, I need to read more Clive Barker because Stephen King said he is the future of horror, and I have to know about that. So I read books, the blood or the books of blood, the inhuman condition, um, 
I think the first full-length book of his I read was Weave World, and I tried to get through the Damnation game but couldn't. But his uh, yeah, his his short fiction is like some of his like the Yattering and Jack is like one of my favorite short stories of all time. That is, it's such a great story. And then, like I said, there's like Down Satan and um, I can't even whatever. There's the, 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 the Hellbound Har and uh, the Midnight Meat Train. Like all these, all the all this stuff is just like insanity from 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 Clive Barker. And uh, yeah, I just really wanted to. I mean, even him as a person, he's just got this like he's just got this like sense about him, this like rugged, like rough Englishness that's just so sensual and mysterious that it's amazing and i love him like well and i think he as a as a um <clears throat> as a writer he is to be a very uh queer writer not because he only writes gay characters but i mean more in the sense of he's not interested in, in traditional and restricted ideas of sexuality and sexual expression a lot of his characters kind of have experiences that like can go whatever direction you not, know? not only that but he's one of the few writers where he can have um he can have characters who are homosexual and their sexual orientation is not part of the story like we just talked about in the hills the cities like the main characters that they're they're two gay men who are married and they're on vacation in europe but the story is not about their sexual orientation orientation at all which is rare because usually when there's like gay characters at some point their sexual orientation comes into it's like there's a there's a focus on that it's like they're not just people who exist it's like we have to talk about how they're homosexual we can't just have them as people we have to talk about them as homosexuals yeah but he doesn't i think there's a way of doing that too that would be somewhat like hiding that or not making it important you never get that feeling like even in the way one of the things i've always sort of thought was interesting was in some of his books, the way that the magic functions is very sexual, you know, like yes. someone ejaculating into their hand in order to like make a certain kind of spell or something like that. I mean, even even the Hellbound Heart, Frank comes back after his after his brother's blood spills in the spot where he had ejaculated, right? Or like the monsters in Everville, the Licks, the Lix, they're snakes that are literally made of shit and semen. Like only Clive Barker can get away with that. He, um, I mean, there's a lot to say, too, about sort of where he's at and his kind of comeback. You know, he went from he's this hot writer, he's directing, he's doing comic books, and then he just kind of went away, and then he got sick. um, And apparently, as you were telling me, I didn't realize this, because of like a dental, he had a like a toxic shock syndrome from a, yeah from, from like from, an abscess tooth yeah, well it was a botched dental it was like he was i guess it was treatment for an abscess tooth and um it was it you know got infected got into a system and he was in like a week-long coma and almost died and uh, i guess if it wasn't for his husband he would probably be dead like in the lost episode liam talks about how he was on what the nerdist and in like in like mid interview he's like oh, i i have to go i don't i don't feel quite quite right i have to go i'll i'm i'm, I'm tremendously sorry it doesn't sound like that at all but <laughs> you get the idea he's very english like i have to go like and then that was he almost died which is crazy it is crazy and to know that he was in this situation but then he came back he was nursed back to health and then the best part about that if you can find that nerdist interview with him is to have him finish it to come back 
you know, I, I think it was like two years later, yeah. a year and a half later, and finish that interview. It's sort of representative of his career. Um, he also paints, and his paintings go for a lot of money. So I don't want to make it sound like he hasn't been working at all. No, he's... But only recently has he been writing again and writing things that, like, from what I hear, are pretty good. Yeah, he just... he just. I mean, it wasn't like... It, well, he didn't, it didn't come out like yesterday, but he just uh, relatively recently released the, uh, the Scarlet Gospel, which is the mm-hmm. conclusion to the story he told in The Hellbound Heart. Mm-hmm. So, are you chewing ice? I am chewing. God ice. damn it! Oh. This is what you get for that chattering tea sound. I earlier. would rather fucking deal with the chatter than than chewing ice. Those ch- something about the sound of teeth clacking makes me want to. I die. get it. I get it. All that to say, um, uh, I think his film output, though there are issues with it, I don't think he ever really. Um, perfected his work as a director. Like, I think, you know, if someone says, well, you know, Clive Barker is whatever, he's not really the the best director. Um, I still really like a lot of what he has done. Um, and I think it's underrated. Like, um, while you could say that, um, you know, none of his movies are perfect, I think each of them is important in their own way, and I think it, he gets undervalued, especially a movie like Nightbreed is one that I think needs, doesn't need, but it it should get more respect than it does. Yeah, so let's let's get into Nightbreed. Um, Nightbreed came out in 1990, and it's the story of this guy named Aaron Boone who takes place in Calgary. The whole movie takes place in Canada, which sure. is cool. It's super cool. And not like polite Canada. We're talking like big city Canada into the wastelands of Can- Canada where the Windwalkers roam. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that's a little uh I forget who wrote that that short story. Some I want to say Frank Belk- Belknap long, but it's not him. Anyway, it's a story about this guy named Boone who he's a, he's a, he's his troubled soul. He feels lost in life and he's seeing this psychiatrist named Decker, Dr. Decker, um and he just, he, he's obsessed with this idea of Midian, this place called Midian where the monsters go and all sins are forgiven. And he's, you know, it's like you're the, the viewers like, OK, this guy's it's, you know, he's crazy. This is just like the 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 the, the, the imaginings of a fevered fevered mind. Um, and meanwhile, it, it's revealed that in the past couple months, there's been this series of particularly unpleasant and brutal murders, like whole families just getting diced up and wiped off, wiped off the face of the planet. And uh, we meet Boone and he, like I said, he's, he's, he's just depressed and he feels lost and he's blah, blah, blah. The only thing he loves in the world is his girlfriend. And they have this great thing going on. He goes to see this doctor. The doctor tells him, look, the cops came looking for my patients. They came to see if any of my patients would be capable of doing this. And he dramatically reveals the crime scene photos sure. of these families that have been killed. He convinces Boone that he himself did it, gives him LSD. Boone wanders the streets, gets high, um, doesn't realize he's getting high, he's hallucinating. He gets put in this hospital, um, and while he's in the hospital, he hears, in the same room as him, hears this guy, this dude just like rambling to himself, you're coming for me, are they here yet? Like just Renfield-style rambling, and he's talking to the guy, and he's like, oh, you know about Midian too? And this guy's like, yes, have they sent you? And he's like, yeah, how do I get back? And he's like, you go over the, past the mountain range and beyond Sheer Neck, but don't go past Dwyer, and then there they are. Um, so he goes there, turns out, Decker's the fucking serial killer, framed him, convinces the cops to go there. They kill Boone, and then Boone comes back and mayhem ensues. 
It was an all right summary. Okay. I, I left out several crucial parts I want to talk about. <laughs> so, um, this is how early I got into this movie. Um, and it's telling because that I didn't even realize this could be an, a- an analogy for something else. Um, I've always maintained that this movie is the most punk movie ever made. It embodies the spirit of punk, the outcast who doesn't know his play, his or her place, their place in the world. And he finds acceptance in a community of outcasts. Oh, I also forgot that Midian is a real place in this movie that's under a cemetery and there's crazy fucking monsters. And he just hangs out there. So I like the idea of feeling like an outcast and feeling like you don't belong and just struggling to exist in everyday society and feeling like no one gives a shit. And then you go to this place that society sees as horrible and evil and you find your place there. I love that. I love that concept of belonging. Um, And it wasn't until relatively recently that I've realized it's probably an analogy for um, LGBTQ folks. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like they don't belong, they feel like they don't belong in this world. They feel like they're persecuted and they are so, and then they go to this place where they're accepted and, you know, everyone is not a monster cause they're amongst all themselves. Uh, and seeing as Clive Barker is openly gay, I wouldn't at all be surprised if that was the intended subtext of the novella in the film. Well, one of the things that I found myself thinking about a lot as, as I've come back to this movie, cause, um, we didn't really talk we talked about it a little bit before but uh you know this this is a film that was released one way and uh was definitely marketed in a weird manner you know weird like bad it's like a slasher movie when it's not at all a slasher movie uh i mean it sort of, that one scene in the beginning yeah that's David, true that's oh, yeah. true also dr decker is played by david cronenberg himself <laughs> oh so he wears a button mask he wears a fucking button face mask that is one of the scariest things i've ever seen in a movie it's out of control and he is so weird in the movie and i mean <laughs> david cronenberg multiple so. times uh, i found myself sort of making a comment because he would do something in the film and then he would like express an emotion and i, I just wanted him to be like is is that what humans would do <laughs> is that is that how a human would do it yeah is that that's how you do it i mean that's how we would do it um but anyways um the thing about this movie is that i sort of had a renaissance with this movie in the sense that i saw the original version but it was hard to find after a certain point that it it was available on VHS. It had a, a, a DVD release. Standard definition Blu-ray. I own it. Uh, and then it kind of went away. And it, and it was something I hadn't thought about for a while. And it was only with this new director's cut that I got into. Not the Cabal cut. Let's make the distinction. Yeah. And to be fair, the the there was a version called the Cabal cut that was kind of a fan project, kind of not, that cut in some VHS footage of stuff. But uh, what happened was once the Cabal cut came out, magically people were like, oh, wait, we have the film of that. Yeah. So the director's cut is 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 um, restored, 4K restored from the film, and then is edited with Clive Barker's supervision. So they didn't just make it up. Like Clive Barker like helped make it happen. Yeah. So whatever. My point being is that um on this second time watching it i was kind of struck by the uh almost like anti-colonial aspects of it like that um there's this kind of group of normal people or people who kind of play themselves off as normal who are the humans yeah and then there's all these species of other creatures ensure that in some sense maybe those species are in fact monsters in the in that they're they're not safe 
they're not okay. They he doesn't sanitize them. You know, it's not like a monster squad thing where Frankenstein's just a lovable character. Yeah, these beings are you know, innocent, friendly or not, very capable of doing great damage. Yeah, and some of them are not good, like in the in the way that you would think. But the point is is that um that what we've come to accept as a distinction, which is between good and evil, is what he wants to break down. He wants to make the monsters in some sense the central focus I, I i might he might not say heroes but definitely the protagonists and what that ends up making me think of is this idea that there's a group of people who are like we're the normal we're the the established we're civilized whatever yeah. and then we go to these places and there's these awful beings and they need to either die or get in line and that's sort of how it's played out that the night breed are this like surviving last? I mean, it really made me think of in specifically indigenous populations that like are in these small little groups. Like, hopefully, they leave us the fuck alone. Yeah, yeah. Like, you the, know? there's there's a tribe in Sri Lanka, right? That that has literally the only contact they've, they've ever had is people have tried to land there and they've shot arrows at them and they're like, fuck it, we don't need to this island that bad. Like, yeah, they yeah, can yeah, have yeah. it. Like. So I, in that sense, the idea that they're living among us and that we don't even know that they're there in some ways, but that it's like we try to eradicate. Like, it's very clear in the movie that humans have known they've existed and have tried to, like, you know, murder them and whatever. It made me think to some extent of a colonialist narrative. And then when, of course, it's obviously also a metaphor or whether directly or not, for LGBTQ things. It made me think of those in academic studies, the relationship between queer studies and and post-colonial stuff. Yeah, yeah. That there's like this idea of this kind of like conformative narrative and and, um, different groups of people sort of break out of that in their own ways, you know? And that makes me think of Clive Barker's writing overall, that he often is, when he's working this sexual stuff in, it's just coming from his imagination, but it's often challenging whatever your assumption is. You know, this is how people are. They always act in these ways. This is what's good. This is what's bad. Everything is cut and dry. Yeah. And Clive Barker's definitely an author that's like, none of it is cut and dry. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, I would definitely compare this as we kind of did when we did the full car episode to Rawhead Rex. Absolutely. That Rawhead Rex is very much a, um, a, a narrative that is critical of the church, but it's not pro-Rawhead Rex either. Like, it's a way of telling a monster story, but it's sort of pointing to that there's something else going on. With Nightbreed, it's not It's not a British horror like that. It's not that folk thing. No, I mean, first but, off, it takes place in Canada. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, it. the similarity it has is that you are inclined to be on the side of the night breed that it doesn't matter that they might be flesh eaters or they might be whatever you porcupine know what I mean? women porcupine women you're kind of like oh but they're the nice ones yeah i mean before i go on side note real quick about raw head rex do you ever see what raw head rex is supposed to look like yes it's so much fucking scarier than it was in the movie oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like nightmarish but um no and i think the whole idea of it being like anti-colonial is when the sheriff rallies up the men to go take care of these disgusting, ungodly creatures, who do they go in with? They make sure they have a priest with them. And I think that's kind of, you know, symbolic in the sense that, like, most of the colonial history of, you know, France, Portugal, England, Spain, whatever, they've gone there for fucking money. 
They've gone there for, for, for land and resources, but it's almost always, they always bring religion into it right. to sort of validate it as this holy quest. Yeah, and it, it's sort of how this goes, like the sheriff just wants to murder. We're just going to go murder these. And, and what the movie really points out is there's no reason to. It's just, okay, look. There's they you know they have Boone they figure out that Boone is supposed to be dead but he's not and just the realization of like oh wait so there's something going on we can't explain so let's kill yeah there's something going on that doesn't fall lockstep with our perception of reality so it has to be just completely and utterly ruined and destroyed just fucking murdered you know and and you know yes the Nightbreed are capable of defending themselves but it's pretty clear that for hundreds of years they've chosen not to yeah, they make it just trying to not get killed numerous characters like there's there, there's a guy who says like why do you want to go up to the cemetery and hurt them like they don't want to hurt anybody like they're they're fine they just up there they leave themselves alone like why would you go in there right. and hurt them they're not doing anything and i think it's just like their very existence offends the antagonist in this movie right like for the sheriff it's something he doesn't understand and for david cronenberg's character he's just they're just breeders they're just breeding filth upon filth upon it's just something that they don't really delve in his motivations as a serial killer but he's definitely like a um well what's the word uh but the a mission killer that he has he believes he's called upon he has this higher morality that Mm. he just has to kill people um and well, his character really functions in a way to remind us that humans are the mon- actual monsters. They're, yeah, they're they're, they're 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 a little on the nose about that. Like this, yeah. But I think it works, and it it it, it also works because he's the only thing to be afraid of in the movie. Yeah, that like yes, there are moments where Boone interacts with the monsters and whatever. But the way that that's filmed, at no point am I really like that worried about the monsters. You yeah. Know what I mean? Whereas, and it, it's, it's funny. It, it's an, a big part of this movie. A big theme in this movie is, is the concept of one's true face. Um, we first encounter it when we meet the character narcissist, who is the, the guy in the hospital that Boone meets, who thinks that he is being sent there by Midian to get him. And he's, he, he's talking to Boone and he's like, did they send you? Did you know, are you here to take me? And Boone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let's tell me where it's at. We'll go. And, um, narcissist is like i have to show you my true face and boone's like what the fuck are you talking and then he literally starts cutting his fucking face off like he he scalps himself and he just does a tremendous amount of damage to his body to reveal his true face to boone and then there's you know boone has his true face as a as a as a, as a night breed um so these are people that become monsters and then you have David Cronenberg's character, mm-hmm. who is a, a human being, but definitely a monster masquerading as a human being. Yeah. Because he has this button mask that he wears. And we're going to be saying this a lot. Uh, in the book, um, it's established that his um, the, the mask is giving him orders. The mask is telling him to kill. You have to put me on. We have to kill. It's sort of like uh, Son of Sam and uh, Harley the dog. Right. Um, so this this mask is, is telling him to kill. And... When he puts the mask on, there's always the sense that that is his true face, that the face he wears when he's counseling patients and goes about the city, goes about his everyday life. That's just a mask. It's only when he puts the mask on that is it's like Rorschach in The Watchmen when uh, he gets attacked by the cops and they pull his mask off and he's screaming, give me back my face because Rorschach sees Walter Kovacs as the mask mm-hmm. and his mask is the true face. And I think that's especially true with, with, with David Cronenberg's character in this movie. 
Yeah, and I think that um, it's clear that uh, the way that his that he kind of functions also allows for a criticism of um, psychology that I think is present in the film in an understated way, but is more present in the book. And when I say a criticism of psychology, I don't just mean like an everyday criticism, like a, oh, it fucking shrinks. Yeah. You know, but more in the way that how we think of mental health becomes a way to control. So what I should say for my nerdy academic friends, it's a Foucauldian Oh, Jesus Christ. But it's true that Michel Foucault sort of pointed out like the ways that we control people are not actually just in these ideas. When we tend to think of state control, we tend to think of like the police and the army and yeah, yeah. all these sort of direct power. But that power functions in the modern world more in determining things like health and sickness and good and bad and bio- biological controls and things like that. So that the way that mental health often works uh, especially in the age of the um, uh, psychological facility, was that you determine who is sane and who's not sane, and those who are not sane are just sort of put away and they don't exist anymore. Um, in this sort of way, Cronenberg, um, who is a fucking monster, has this power over Boone's life when, in reality, you know. Boone has a destiny in Midian. Like, the, yeah. the, the, that, all that is real. And it's also interesting because it's literally the insane telling the sane that they are insane. Right, And Boone exactly. is many things. He's emotionally troubled and he has his yeah. fair share of issues, <clears throat> but he's not crazy. No, not at all. He's not crazy at all. Like, everything he imagines is fucking real. Like, there are monsters in the real. And he's completely innocent. Like, and that's the other thing that we, and you still see it now. Like, every time some white dude goes into a public place and shoots a bunch of people, uh, we kind of blurry the lines between mental health and good and bad. Yes, and it, 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 it's sort of like the sense of personal responsibility is removed, right? Because you're like, oh no, he hasn't. He hasn't. They have a well. Fuck it. We'll say he because most of them it's white men. Yeah, yeah. Have a mental illness, so that removes their sense of agency and responsibility, which isn't true, true at all. Yeah. And in this film, there's a sense in which um, Boone should feel bad because he is quote unquote crazy or whatever, whatever. But like when he interacts with the monsters, they see him. And the I mean, granted, this guy is using it as an excuse to eat him. But the <laughs> point is, is that he knows like, no, you're innocent. Yeah. And I could no, smell I, innocent from 500 I yards. I killed. I killed. No, you didn't kill anybody. You're just a guy. Yeah. There's you're just nothing. me for the beast. Is what yeah, he says. exactly. So um, the way that that functions, I think, is really interesting. And uh, and it really shows the way that. Um, certain nefarious elements can kind of embed themselves. So like he ends up manipulating the town and the police and whoever to go after these creatures, you know, Um, because he can pretend to be something, you know, he's very good at it. Yeah. He's um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about was the director's cut versus the theatrical cut. Sure. Um, The one thing that really, the only thing that really I, I dug aside from, they show more of the monsters, but you know, whatever that's cool and all, but that was not the coolest part for me. I, I had said in, in our in our lost episode, the one thing I really like is in the theatrical cut. Um, what draws Boone to the hospital in the movie is that uh, Decker gives him this bottle of pills. Says, "Take these," and it's implied that they're like lithium or Xanax or something like that, something to, like mellow you out. So he takes these and he starts tripping fucking balls. Like, I mean, it's insane shit. Now in the theatrical cut, 
you see that it, it cuts from the doctor saying, oh, take these pills. And then it's a shot of Boone just wandering down the road like, oh, it's lost. Ah. And then he gets hit by a truck, I think. And then the next scene is them in the hospital. And the doctor's like, what you on, kid? What are you on? He's like, oh, this is lithium. And he's like, this is industrial strength hallucinogens. You're what we you're on what we called a, a bad trip back in the day. I took the brown acid and I fucked all night the Janis Joplin. Like, <laughs> that, that's not in the movie. That's not in the movie. But like in the theatrical cut, you're like, well, he got hit by a truck. Like, how is he hallucinating? In this one, they show him he's fucking burning his clothes. He's running around the apartment and is, he's like he's just seeing himself fuck his girlfriend. And it's really weird because I don't need to see Craig Schaefer in his fucking underwear. Yeah. I don't. I'll, I don't need to see that. Um, but I think that is it was definitely an improvement over the original one, where it explains like how did we get to here mm-hmm. that he's like tripping out. I also like the more I think about it, the more I like the ending better in the in this version than in the theatrical version yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's um it's a little more it's not more final because ironically i actually feels it, it feels less complete yeah it's definitely a setup for a sequel in a, in a real way but i like that it they make it clear to me they made it more clear what's going on with the priest character so um we kind of hinted on this but you know the the posse the angry white men in canada they decide they need this priest to come but as soon as they get there with the priest the priest is real concerned you know he's real like whoa guys and they hate him they're just like oh this fucking what are you gonna do about this padre Mm -hmm. like they allude to him being like he's in jail for some reason Mm -hmm. so he's a drunk he's drunk oh okay okay so that was like the drunk tank yeah Yeah. but what's interesting is he just shows up and he realizes that these monsters are not so bad they're children of god you know and he starts wandering around but what i like about it is he in some sense uh becomes collateral damage he bears no ill will towards them he actually kind of wants to be a part of this he's seen indeed them. he tries to prevent he he's going to bat for them like saying yeah. like there are women and children down there yeah, like you yeah, cannot yeah. do this but when he wanders into the room with uh baphomet hell baphomet it's pretty clear that he is not welcome there especially when baphomet makes a weird bowl of what well, looks like jizz, but it's bubbling hot cum is glowing. I don't know what it is, but it ends up on his face and it fucks a, him up. It's agape, I believe, is the term. And what I think is interesting about it is that he, by the end of the movie, is sort of suggested as like a future villain. You know, it ends with him kind of like he's going to get revenge. He has seen something. It's like a Lovecrafty, and I've seen what lies beyond, and it has driven me to madness. And now he's gonna he's gonna make them pay. Yeah, he's on a holy mission. And what I what I like about that is the idea that the movie. Right at a moment where you could very easily um, idealize the Nightbreed, that it's pretty clear like Baphomet has now created their future enemy. Yeah, but I don't know if it's on purpose though, because I don't think like it all goes back to the whole idea that like. But it doesn't have to be on purpose for him to be collateral damage. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the, they're just trying to get away, and in the course of them getting away, whether he did it or not, this dude cross the line or didn't cross the line it doesn't matter the point is is he's fucked up yeah 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 and now if there were sequels which there weren't because this movie made like no money um if it if there had been sequels they now their next challenge is one that they've created yes now they had to it was just a just part of what happened sometimes you have to make decisions and then there's consequences of those decisions no one really i think was like hey while we're going 
let's make sure we fucking maim this priest guy. Splash him with some divine cum. Because he's an asshole. We just want to fuck his day up. Yeah. No, that's not it at all. But I think it works for the story to be like, okay, well, an unintended consequence. Now you've got this next thing to deal with. Yeah. You know, and I, it made me think... Man, it would have been cool to see a sequel to this movie. Absolutely. I just think with the quality of the characters, like, and we didn't really talk about this too much, but the creature design of it's uh, it's oh, so me. good. Almost all the Nightbreed, the creature design is is just like, whoa, that's really neat. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's very Clive Barkerish, very fantastic, um, and I do think this film could 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 probably benefit from both a sequel and a remake. Mm-hmm. Um. Just because I, I think, like, in today's special effects, you could do some really cool shit. Like, not that the effects in this movie weren't cool. I mean, for what they are at the time, they're really good. I mean, there's, I, there's, there's claymation in this movie, so that says it. Like, Yeah, I think there's probably limitations at the time, budget-wise. I don't, I don't know that he had all the money in the world to work with. And it doesn't really matter because they cut out some of his best fucking work. They cut out anyway. Like, this is a movie that, like, left... I mean, again, I don't think you're missing out if you see the theatrical cut, but what he added back in was a lot of creature effects, a lot of shots of Midian, a lot of stuff that kind of like humanizes the monsters a little bit, like sort of them as like victims of this thing. So, yeah. And um, I mean, even like one of the things I really like about this movie from, from from a technical viewpoint is like Craig Schaefer is not a A list actor not at all he's not like he's not like a fucking de niro or like i don't like a michael shannon if we want to talk about like cinepunks sure but like he really does excel in this movie as a man who is just lost and has nowhere to go like he really does bring about that like i mean he wears like a leather jacket and like you know uh like a leather jacket and and fucking sunglasses and it's like yeah he's a fucking badass but it's like no, he really doesn't know what he's doing in his life. Right. Like, he, he he has that, like, very, like, vulnerable love with his girlfriend. And then, again, he's just lost. And I think he does a really good job of bringing that um, across. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad performance. I mean, he's a little bit of a dud personality-wise, but it works for the film, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean... He's not doing anything particularly charismatic, but he's not annoying. You're not like, oh, this fucking guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Craig Schaefer's fine. I mean, he, he, did, he was in Fire in the Sky as what we called the only thinking being in, in Fire in the Sky is sure. Alan Dallas, the guy who's like, this would be an asshole and get out of the truck. Guess what? We're leaving him. Yeah. Get, you know what I mean? Like, But it, but I think um, the movie's kind of stolen by Cronenberg in some ways. Like oh his performance God. is very good. The girlfriend character's fine. Like she's fine. Yeah, I don't think, I think there are, good. I, I don't think there are any like bad performances in this movie really. Well, I don't think either one of us love one of the Nightbreed is just a guy with a dog. I kind of like that guy. <laughs> I don't I, I don't understand his purpose. I don't understand why he's Nightbreed. Yeah. I don't like I mean cuz all the other Nightbreed there's like the porcupine woman. There's the fucking there's Moonface who has a moon for a face. Yep. And there's a guy with the dreadlocks that's like your meat for the beast. And then there's a woman who could turn into smoke. There's Doug Jones or yeah, Doug Jones, Doug Bradley who has extra eyes. And there's just this guy who carries around a Boston Terrier. And who just can't be in the sun. And I really want it to be that the Boston Terrier is actually in charge and he's like the pet of the Boston Terrier, but that never happens. Unfortunately, so. we don't see the Boston Terrier attack his uh, his murderers for destroying my only friend. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I do think that um, uh, there's no, yeah, there's no performance that you're like, I mean, even the, um, 
the asshole sheriff who that guy the is so together. good he's so good in that role i just i just feel like i mean it, you know there's probably some side things here and there if, if you're a stickler for uh that sort of thing it's it's not that the movie excels it's not like um some little indie that doesn't get the respect it deserves like the movie is a little bit of a mess it's a little choppy um it, it, it it's easy to criticize it but i think that um there's no performance that i was like fuck that guy like what is yeah yeah i mean here? even it, actually the only time i was like fuck that guy was the sheriff because like i mean usually when they they portray like small town cops it's like they go for the barney fife and the gomer pile this yeah. guy sounded like this guy was the type of guy that if it panned out from his office or you looked at his bookshelf, that guy has a copy of the fucking Turner Diaries there. Yeah, probably. And Mein Kampf, probably. Like, this yeah. guy is a fascist. He's not some bumbling Barney Fife guy. This guy is a fucking fascist in yeah. everything but name. Um, But his performance is good. Yeah. And he he I makes mean, you hate he, him. He really works in because he's, like, goofy. He's He doesn't... He, he brings a sense both of humor in that he's kind of ridiculous but menace because you don't you're not surprised when he's like well get the posse together like it's like oh okay that's where we're at with this community this is what they're about you yeah know what i mean so uh yeah i think um i think nightbreed is an underrated movie in a lot of ways yeah definitely i mean and i'm always amazed at how 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 many people haven't seen it Right. Because, well, I mean, it doesn't, it's not, it really is not a traditional horror movie. No. It really is. I, I still think it works as a horror movie. And the, the sequences with David Cronenberg as a serial killer are fucking effective and terrifying. Yeah. I, 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 mean? I always say the scene where him, the scene with him in the beginning, um, after he kills this couple, and there's like their, their son is like cowering at the top of the stairs. And it's just a shot of David Cronenberg in this mask, wielding a knife walking up the stairs one at a time it's so scary and i i I just i can't even i can't it's just it's fucking weird it's just it's one of it's one of my all-time favorite shots not scenes but shots because it's just it's so evil and menacing and terrifying because he's about to kill a kid and he's wearing a button face mask and it really feels though like um outs uh, that the story functions in a lot of ways more like a kind of fantasy event. You know, he's it's about Boone discovering himself and this community becomes a part of it. It has more of an adventure feel than a lot of horror movies. Even if Cronenberg is fucked up, even if the monsters in their own way are kind of fucked up, yeah. even if at a certain point a dude rips his fucking face off, <laughs> you know, because he's trying to get to Midian, it, all those elements give it a darkness but I, I could see someone who's trying to be like terrified, like that's not what they're, they're, they're not going to feel that sense of dread that you might in another thing. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, so Nightbreed, I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. Um, good luck finding the theatrical cut, but you can definitely get the, uh, the, Blue, the Blu-ray director's cut on Scream Factory. I would also recommend reading the book. I think the, if, if it's something that seems interesting to you um i think the book is really actually pretty good yeah i mean and it has it has a a lot of things that aren't really it's a it's a it's just a touch more sexual than the movie is because they can't show you know it's true true. um i mean there's a scene where there's baphomet who created mini and there's a scene where boone has an orgasm and it floats up and touches his face i remember that and thinking why is that happening this is clive barker clive barker was like i haven't talked about a man ejaculating upon something in mm, three pages i better write write a scene Poor, that's a shame. Poor Clive. Yeah, he, he's. I hope he's okay. 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I I think it's worth a revisit, and I think it again it's a mess of a movie in some ways, but I, I like the imagination of it. I like the way that it flows. Um, uh, you know, it it has some sort of low points, and I think the ending. I like the very end, the denouement. Yeah. I think the exciting ending, there's just a few too many shots of Midian kind of falling in on itself. Yeah, and, and it, Berserkers being released. It, it loses a little momentum. Once the Berserkers come out, it's kind of fun. But again, the Berserker outfits, like that's also a limitation of the special effects. Yes. It's like, all right, there's a guy in a rubber suit, and he's just doing his rubber suit guy thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that's Nightbreed. All right. Excellent movie. And now we're going to talk about a movie called Hellraiser. Hellraiser. We'll be right back. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. recording oh we're fucking recording we are back back to talk about hellraiser that is hellraiser time to talk about that goofy hellraiser raising hell left and right so hellraiser um he's a real hellraiser he is. that one and for our sensitive viewers heck razor um well hellraiser is just oh my god it's if you don't i, I can't i can't imagine you're listening to a horror podcast a horror podcast and you don't you're not familiar with pinhead at least um, because he's one of the most iconic villains, I guess, in any horror movie ever. Um, and for good reason, because it's, it, he's awesome. Uh, so Hellraiser was released in 1987. It was not the first adaption of a Clive Barker short story or story at all, but it's, it's his, it's his most famous adaption ever. And basically just the bare bones plot of this movie is there's this guy, Frank, who has exhausted all earthly sensual delights. He's a hedonist. He travels the world. He needs all delights. And he hears stories about this box that if you solve it, it's a puzzle box. If you solve it, you will be greeted by the Cenobites who will take you to a realm of endless sensuality and sensation. And so he thinks like, cool, I'm going to just come forever. I'm just going to have orgasm after orgasm. Wrong. He gets, he solves the box. He gets taken by these just evil fucking fucked up looking things. He's ripped apart. And then, like a year later, or whatever, he's ripped apart. He, what did they do to him? They rip him apart. No, it's just the casual. Yeah. It's like the most casual note. Yeah. So it's like, and then he's eventually resurrected by his brother's blood that spills on the ground, 
we reveal that he that Frank had been fucking his sister-in-law, so she starts feeding him men to regain his flesh and blood back. And then uh, his brother's uh, daughter, uh, Kirsty, she has to, you know, figure all this stuff out. And, you know, there's some, some bad stuff happens. Some real bad some stuff. Some real bad stuff. Some hell raising happens. Some Hellraiser shit goes down, as a friend of the podcast, John John Carlo DeMarkey would say. <laughs> so, um, I couldn't tell you the first time I heard of Hellraiser. I'm going to say it was probably through either Fangoria or like seeing an advertisement for it at the, at the local video rental place. But the first time I saw this movie was with my friend Andrew when we were maybe like 14 or 15. We rented it on VHS and we watched it and... I can't even tell you my first reaction to what this movie was like upon finding out what it, what it was about. There's nothing else out there like Hellraiser. Nothing. It's it just looks weird. Everything about this movie is just strange and off. Well, I think the the first Hellraiser is the reason Clive Barker got to make more movies. Yes. And I think the Lord of Illusion is the reason he did not get to make more movies. Yes. But, um I think the the thing about Hellraiser is that um I mean there's weird things about it that we can get into, but I think one of the things about it that's worth noting on a positive level is that it flows per it is to me an amazingly well directed picture. It has, yes. The pacing goes well, the special effects are all difficult, but they all work. The imagery is unbelievable. And the performances, I mean, it's only it's a very small cast for what it is, uh, but every performance works so well together. Yeah, all of the main characters are immensely talented. Yep. I mean, Sean Chapman is Uncle Frank. Yep. Before he becomes like a skinless horror. Yep. Is so good. Um, Claire Higgins as Julia is again amazing. Andrew Robertson is as, as 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 Larry Cotton, awesome. Ashley Lawrence as Kirsty is and this was her first performance, and it, you couldn't tell. She she's amazing oh, in this. Yeah, yeah, she's unbelievable. Um Oh my god, I don't even know where to get started with I don't even know where to get started with unpacking this. So movie. I think uh there's a few things that we sort of talked about a little bit with this. Um one is the house. The house is so perfect because it is, it never feels clean. Even once they clean it, it feels dirty. Um, It is somehow super expansive in that there's a million rooms. Yeah. But every room is claustrophobic. Everywhere feels like it's too tight. Everything feels like everyone's too close together. Yes. But there's constant space to film in new areas. And, there's just something haunting about that space in the house, the way they use the space, the way they they portray the house. Yeah, it's definitely it, it definitely feels like it, it it's like a, like you look at it from the outside and then you you go inside and you're like there's no way this could exist in what I was just looking at. There's just these rooms that open off off hallways. The third floor is like weirdly constructed. Um and just the idea of there being this room in the house where it's a house where Larry Cotton has no idea his brother is there. Right. Like, that's how big it is, is that he has no idea that his skinless brother, who's back from hell, is fucking hiding out and eating people. Like, yep. It, it, and then there's like all the, there's these other rooms that we see briefly that are just filled with junk. Um, yeah, it's just the location of it is just weird and dark and super creepy and very nonsensical. And I don't mean like funny, but I mean, it literally doesn't make any sense. Like, it goes, it's sort of like, do you ever hear the theory about, like, Stanley Kubrick and The Shining? 
how when uh, Ullman is interviewing Jack Torrance, he's in a room that shouldn't exist because the way Jack Nicholson goes down the hallway. Yep. That's how this mo- this whole movie feels like that. And like every time you're in the house, you're just like, none of this makes any fucking sense. Yep. And um, I guess like an, an, another thing is like some of the like we talked about some of the imagery, um, the way the Cenobites are dressed. Yep. Has always like kind of creeped me out mm-hmm. because it looks like it, I mean it was Clive Barker was inspired by like S and M fashion at clubs and it definitely comes through, but it feels appropriately like you're looking at some kind of religious order. Yeah, and they don't talk about it often in the in the in the, in, the, in the movie. They don't really call. I mean, they're called the Cenobites, and Cenobite is like an archaic term for a monk. And in, in the short story, though, they're known as the Hierophants or members of the Order of the Gash. So, which sounds you know, thank you, Clive Barker. It sounds super sexual, um, but that's what these things are, and they're just like they don't really. They're not the villains, like they're not the bad guys in this movie. Well, yeah, in the yeah. in the film, I mean, they're definitely not trustworthy. They're definitely dangerous. They're definitely represent. I mean, in that sense, they have an edge to them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're not they're not safe or anything like that. And they're not as as they sort of try to make Pinhead later. They're not heroes in any sense. But they're not villains either. The villain of the movie though is Uncle Frank, and that's what often gets lost in this. Is if you ask like your casual person off the street like do you know who pin do you know you, you seen hellraiser who's the bad guy in hellraiser nine out of ten people are going to say pinhead um even though in the first two movies he's not the bad guy it's uncle frank and then julia and dr shannard and the ones who are bad pinhead and the rest of the cenobites are they're not good or bad they're just these amoral things who just kind of exist in the background and i, I mean in the first one they try to give him this devious nature but again in clive barker's vision they're not good or bad they've completely cast aside morality in favor of sensation and that's kind of touched upon is when um kirstie asks like who are you they tell him like we are explorers in the furthest realms of 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 sensation and that's what they are and that's the whole thing is that like frank thought when he was going to get unending sensual feeling he he automatically assumed orgasm pleasure but then it's like no these things just do shit for the sake of feeling something and when they push that to the furthest realms, pain and pleasure become indistinguishable. There's just sensation. And that's what Frank doesn't understand, is that it's all the same to them. And that's what they exist for. They don't exist to fuck with people. They just exist to pursue sensation. And they show it. They just don't hurt people. They hurt themselves as well. I mean, Pinhead has nails driven to his head. One of these characters, the chatterbox, is just his face is mutilated beyond belief. And they all do this willingly because that's what they exist for. They exist to feel something and i think that um what that kind of get like what clive barker's really interesting at doing is sort of working sexuality and sex stuff into his stories and the thing with the hellbound heart is that it gets at the way that love and sex can involve pain you know yeah yeah both in the romantic sense that the passion that you have for someone is sort of sort of pain a sort of need or an itch that you can't scratch but then in the physical sense that like um you know sex itself can involve pain and and suffering you know f- more for some people than for others you yeah know? yeah and clive barker manages to tap into all those things in a way that's really disturbing without ever really making a judgment call you know what i mean like yes these things are in hell 
and hell quote unquote Frank goes to something like hell but the movie isn't about that the movie isn't it's it's actually and this is something we talked about in the religion episode but this is one of the few movies that involves hell that has no uh christian agenda no no inevitably that when you make movies about hell you unintentionally make these like christian propaganda movies even though Oftentimes, no one involved in the movie is actually particularly interested in selling you on a religion. Yeah, yeah. It just happens that way where hell is bad and heaven is good, and that's just how it is. And in this movie, it's kind of like, well, hell doesn't seem like it's for me. That's not a place I want to go, per se. Yeah. But it's not about... Oh well, there we have to defeat the Cenobites for the Lord Jesus commands yeah. us to defeat them. It's just yo, Frank sucks, and Frank <laughs> Frank did a thing, and now he's paying the price for it, and he's trying to get out of that. Exactly. And so all these people want is look, we own him. He called us. He willingly gave himself over to us. He gave himself to us, and now he regrets it, and he wants to be back here. Well, that's not going to fucking work out. Yeah, two things. Um. Actually, three. Uh, just real quick, I I love that Barker's t- blending of pleasure and pain in in the book. It's sort of like uh, it's in- intermingled by how Frank comes back. In the movie, we see his brother spill blood on the floor where he was taken from, and that's what brings him back. In the book, his brother spills his blood upon upon the place where Frank had spilled his seed. Because when they first start doing this shit to him, he immediately has this like just. You just want to talk more about cum. No, I don't. I, I just because I think I, I think it's cool how it's like there's the spilling of the seed, which is the pleasure. <laughs> I like how you immediately got defensive. No, no, no. That's I don't not talk about cum. Um, so there's like the spilling of Frank's semen from the pleasure. Sure. And then there's the spilling of Larry's blood when he cuts himself on accident from blood or yeah. from 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 with the pain. And Larry is sickened by the sight of blood. So which is interesting that it's it's sort of like there's this thing that can bring him bring Frank back from the realm of ultimate sensation is the blending of the two kinds of sensation like pleasure and pain. Um, And then for Frank being theirs, again, the Cenobites just don't show up and start fucking with you. Right. You have to summon them. And then even when they get there, this isn't touched really in the movie, but in in the novella, they're very clearly like, look, what you're about to experience might not be what you're looking for. Are you sure you want to do this? And he's like, yes, take me. I want to do this. And they're like, are you sure? And he's like, I want to feel the ultimate sensation. And they're like, all right, well, you're ours now. And it's all about free will. And in this, and I, I like in the second one how Pinhead Connolly, when they, when Dr. Chenard makes this mentally challenged girl solve the puzzle box, and when the Cenobites get there, he's like, no, leave her alone. Like, she solved the puzzle, but it's not hands that summon us. It's desire. Get that fucking asshole. He's the one who wants it. He's the one who wants us to be here. Go after him. Um, so, yeah, it, it's this weird idea that, like, you bring it on yourself, kind of. Right. That the, 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 the Cenobitic punishment is that you, you have to want it to get it, but then it's sort of like, uh, but this isn't what I wanted. Well, it's too bad. You're ours now. And I think in that way... It it is. It, I mean, there has to be a way to explore the problems with desire that aren't just about guilt. And that's not to say that Clive Barker doesn't have some religious inclinations to 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 some extent. But I I think that the point of that story uh, is to say like desire is a problem not because of old man in the sky whatever. That desire become can become a problem because you're willing to hurt others or hurt yourself to get what you want in that way 
the movie actually sometimes makes me think less of sex and more of drugs. That like it does. I mean, not that sex can't be this way, but I think at least in our and I think in the American context, this is just my judgment. You can tell me okay. what you think. That people wish that their sex lives were as messy as this movie. As Frank's? Not as Frank's, but the idea in the movie, the way the story sort of plays out on its surface is Frank, I mean, Frank is a fuck machine. That's all the man does is fuck and get tortured in this movie. But what I'm saying is that he could just go around fucking and fucking and fucking and he's just like, it's just not enough. He's got all the pictures of him with all these ladies. He's going around the world fucking all these women, trying all this crazy sex shit it's just not enough for him i don't think that's how it is for most people however the idea that there's this thing you desire and that desire eventually destroys you that could be for success for money i think for a lot of people it's uh, it could be a metaphor for addiction i mean what frank is going through in the film could be very much like addiction because he's telling a woman immediately after every after he has sex with her this wasn't enough yeah like he's always chasing the dragon when it comes to physical sensation. So I think in that in that way, like watching that movie could be a way of sort of exploring that idea of addiction. Um, but you know, it's not. It also has this idea of the body. I mean, it's the same in Nightbreed that Clive Barker is a very physical storyteller, and all of his stories are very embodied and enfleshed. And I think the Hellraiser idea you know, starting with Hellbound Heart and then explored very visually in the Hellraiser movies is this sort of idea that within ourselves there really is a universe of sensation. Yeah. Which is technically true. I mean, there's a million nerves and you've got all these things going on and, you know, whatever. He sort of explores that in this. And, you know, in this movie, it ends up Frank is just a pile of goo. You know, (laughs) he's been ripped apart and he's all that's left is all this gunk and whatever. But... Um, I think it's something that he sort of works into other stories as well. This idea of the physical, it may, it really does make me think of Lord of Illusions that, you know, um, Lord of Illusions sort of makes the idea that magic is just an illusion, but guess what? There are different kinds of illusions. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes illusions are actually really scary and awful and gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and another another prevalent theme in this movie is the concept of like morality under under duress. I believe is the word. Uh-huh. Um, because the whole thing is is like Julia wants to be with Frank no matter what, whether yeah. or not she's in love with him or she just physically wants to be with him. Yeah, she's willing to do horrible things for this man, this oh. quote unquote man. Oh yes, like the whole movie is her bringing lovers home, seducing them, and then Frank just kills them and eats them uh, they don't make it clear gain sustenance I, from I their flesh he eats them in some way yeah so it, it, it it's it's kind of cool how it, it it looks at what are you willing to do to get what you really want yeah be it solve a puzzle box and fuck with interdimensional beings or kill men for your flayed lover to gain their flesh back um it, 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 it explores that concept of how plastic is morality what are you willing to do to justify um, to get to, to justify getting what you want, like what is that all about? Yeah, and I, and again, I think that is very much tied to this sort of like destructive, scary aspect of desire. Um, we didn't talk about it yet, but I think it's worth mentioning that um, Hellraiser is a uniquely gross movie. Yeah, and that when I say that. It's not that there aren't other movies that do other things that are 
disturbing or get under your skin or that don't that have amazing special effects i mean i'll lift up the eye gouge and zombie forever as just an amazing piece of gore but hellraiser it's not just gore like i mean technically the grossest thing one of the grossest things is like just when he's reconstituting himself as a human. So you know? just gooey and icky. Yeah, and or just even just the house itself, how dirty it is when they first get there and the fucking roaches and maggots everywhere. Yeah, there's just there's just so many visual choices that are just fucking ugh. Even the Cenobites, they just yeah. look infected and, and and especially the Chatterer and, and Butterball, they just look gross. Like Pinhead's yep. disgusting, but he's not like filthy he's like desiccated yeah and the female cenobite she's like just okay like what she her throat's flayed open doesn't matter but it's it's definitely and i think what's so gross about it is like these cenobites look this way because they choose to look that way right because they choose to just like looking disgusting was a means for an end what what was the end result of them pursuing this pleasure this thing for sensation yeah um yeah, it's it's definitely a movie that makes you tremendously uncomfortable at times. Yeah, be it the way Frank talks to his niece, um, yep. or I mean, and then it, it becomes like when he uh, when he spoiler at the end when he takes his brother's skin and the way he's talking to his still his niece, but now he's talking to her like as a father to a daughter. I mean, the whole these catchphrases come to daddy. There's definitely a point at which he's wearing um, what's a. What's Frank's brother's name? Her Larry. Dad, Larry. He's wearing Larry's skin, and the effect is just that they've put blood on it on him. Yeah, you know that's it. But the way he plays it, where it looks like he's moving his skin around, and yeah, he's just trying to figure out to how to make it fit. It's very effective and very gross. And just some of the way he talks to his daughter is like Larry Cotton is not the smartest man, right? But he's definitely very kind, and he genuinely cares about his family. Yeah. And he never he's never short with him. He's never like mean. But the second Andrew Robertson stops playing Larry and starts playing Frank, he switches it. He's very short with his his daughter. Um, he's just creepy and he he's always leering. And he just does a really good job of like portraying this, like, you know, going from the concerned father figure to a fucking predator. Yeah. He he nails it. His performance is super solid, but I think there's also um, there's a lot under the surface. There's a lot of of, of suggestion of things like like yes, in the sense of the menace of Frank in Larry's skin, but even with the Cenobites, you know, um, Pinhead is always offering more, and you're always thinking, what 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 would be more than this? What's <laughs> what's more than this? What is the next thing? But in that way. It's Barker's playing off your imagination, which is crazy because it's a movie that shows you so much. But they, exactly, they have such sights to show you. Yeah. What you're seeing is nothing compared to what we could show yeah. you. And I think that becomes even more true in the sequel where they really do show you a lot, but even what they show you suggests that there's something worse. Yes, absolutely. Like every effect in the second movie is is to go, oh, here's a little bit of goo, but trust me, what's it behind gets, the it curtain gets way is more disgusting. Terrible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, so one one of the last things I want to I want to discuss is the way the Cenobites are revealed and introduced. Um, in the book, when the box is solved, I always say that. I know I, I I hate that when the when the box is solved. There's this 
the first thing the person hears is this chiming of this far off bell, this mournful bell just ringing. It's literally the bell of hell. You know, it means that the schism is about to open up and the Cenobites are about to come through. And in the movie, this the score is by a guy named Christopher Young. It's an excellent soundtrack. The soundtrack that always plays when the box is, is solved, and there's this like chord hit, this hit of a chord of like a minor whatever. Yeah. It sounds like a bell ringing. And then there's like the light coming through the slats in the walls, which is so terrifying. Yes. And then the Cenobites are just there. And it's always the sense that they don't appear. It's that they're revealed. Especially towards the end when when Kirsty goes to trap Frank and she t- she goes into the room with her, you know, there's her father's remains are on the ground. And then she has Frank admit that he's Frank. And all of a sudden, the Cenobites are just there. And it's almost like they were there the whole time. It's just like a veil is being pulled back. I just think that's a really creepy way to to introduce them is that they don't have this dramatic appearance. It's just suddenly the light is illuminating, illuminating a dark corner and Butterball standing there. And um, it's just a really effective way of introducing you to, to the Cenobites. On the last episode, I remember because you were trying to look for a word. You were trying to relate it to um, transubstantiation or something. You know, we were talking about yeah, yeah, theological yeah, yeah. terms that would apply to it. And one of the things I said is that it actually makes me think of the transfiguration in which um, Mo- Jesus is praying, and Moses and Elijah just show up, and Jesus just starts glowing. And the, <laughs> and the idea is that like that this was always what was there, but it's suddenly revealed. You can just you know, see it now. Yeah, in the flesh, suddenly what's revealed is this like glory or whatever, whatever. Um, in that sense, I think that's sort of how the Cenobites function. That they're always that there are creatures always behind the veil, which is also very. Lovecraftian, you know, absolutely, yeah. But the idea is that there's always something just behind, and that whether it's the puzzle box or the fact that they know Frank is there, or whatever. It's that it's not that they, uh, it's not that they break through, but it's sort of like they were present, and now they're kind of revealed to be exactly, there. yeah. And there's something about that that really is very effective, you know. And, and there's a few other movies that sort of play it that way too, but that that's one of the ones that scene is very much like that. And I think it, it's even more effective in the second film in using the um, mental hospital as yeah, a sort yeah. of space that like it seems one thing and then it kind of opens itself up to you. It opens up like a flower almost to reveal what's going on. Yeah, it's it's like in the first one when, when, when Kirstie solves the box in the hospital, all these little weird things start going on. Like the TV just starts showing a flower opening up through static. And then again, the lights and the, the lights of the slats in the walls and everything. Um, and it's like e- e- even in the second one where she's like sitting, she's having that that dream about her father or vision of her father. The yeah. the famous "Help me, I am in hell," where you know yeah. her father's painting on the wall. He's just revealed all of a sudden. He doesn't appear. It's just like there's like steam from the radiator, and all of a sudden he's there, and you know begging her to save him because he's in hell. Um, it's just, yeah, like Liam said, it's very effective. And it's something that I think represents a little bit of how Clive Barker writes about these things is 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 that, um, at least in my memory, he never really writes invasion stories. There's some force from outside that is coming in. But no. More, more that there's something there that you didn't realize, yeah, like Yattering and Jack. Yeah, that the yattering is there the whole time, and and Jack knows it, but we just don't know how yeah. aware of it he is. You know? Or like even in 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 Weave World, how there's the the, the threat of this thing called the scourge, mm-hmm. and how it's not coming from the outside; it's just there, and they have to avoid it. It's yeah. just present. Yeah. 
Um, so I get is that that's Hellraiser. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you haven't, if for some reason you're someone who has gotten a chance to see it, it's definitely worth seeing. I think there's, I mean, there's more you can get into with Hellraiser in some ways than just the way that um, the physical body kind of works. That, yeah. That we're sort of trapped in this thing and whatever, whatever. But I think for the most part, we kind of got it a lot of like, it's gooey and disturbing. It's it's very well acted. Um and it manages to still hit a chord, even now watching it after yeah, I've mean, seen it a bunch of times. Like I said, when I, I talked about this on the on the Lost episode. When Liam and I were watching this, I've always been struck by the scene where Frank comes back. It's really creepy. And it's even creepier when it dawns and you like, like, this is we're seeing a man pull himself out of hell. Like, it's sort of like Dr. Manhattan and the Watchmen. It's the second time I brought up Watchmen in this episode. It's like when, when, when John Osterman is disintegrated and destroyed, Dr. Manhattan comes back, like, one system at a time. You see his brain and his nervous system, his skeleton. And then, like, it's just, it's sort of like that, like how Frank is just pulling himself together back in the physical realm, and it's disgusting. It's just so gross. Um, but I guess I, I want to end this quickly on two anecdotes that involve Hellraiser. Uh, the first one was the first time I saw Hellraiser. I rented it on VHS with my friend Andrew. And at the end of the at the end of the movie, there was this infomercial for Hellraiser merchandise. And it's the worst infomercial ever. It's like this guy doing a spooky, like, who was the guy who did Elmer from Brain Damage? The famous Philadelphia. Oh, I, I don't remember that guy's name, but I know. It's very him. And he's like, you can get your Hellraiser t-shirt. It's pure cotton and hellishly good. You can get this Hellraiser baseball. And it's like showing like the, the t-shirt hanging from chains. And then there's like a number at the end of it. And it's like, call this number to place an order. And my friend Andrew and I were like, we just call that number and demand to talk to Hellraiser. But number didn't work. So we're like, you know, you're a kid. You're like, let's call our friend Chuck at two in the morning and ask for Hellraiser. It doesn't make any sense. But so we call his house. His mother picks up and we both start screaming, put Hellraiser on the fucking phone, which is the most dickish thing to do to like an older woman in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, the second thing I'll we'll just wrap it up was I was lucky enough a couple years ago to actually meet Doug Bradley and Ashley Lawrence at a horror convention. Both super nice. Um, but the funniest thing was that day I was wearing a Smith, a Smith shirt and I go up to meet Doug Bradley and he's like, he shakes my hand and it's, he, he sees my shirt and he's like, oh my God, the Smiths, are you serious? And I'm like, uh, uh what? And he's like, oh God, you have terrible taste in music. And then like, Ashley Lawrence starts like chiding him like Doug be nice be nice and he's like I'm just I can't help it that he has shit taste in music and I'm like if there's anyone else but Doug Bradley I just walk the fuck away and there's all right all right let's start again my name is Doug are you a fan of Morrissey's solo stuff and I was like absolutely he's like have a seat it's just like what a surreal fucking experience to have Doug Bradley make fun of the Smiths and then be like oh yeah but Morrissey's solo stuff is cool um so yeah, that's that. That's uh, actually insane to me, by the way. Yeah, I do. I, I'm I'm looking forward to meeting them again in in the fall, and I I kind of want to get like a a Doug Bradley bump for the for the bumper for the podcast. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, you should definitely wear uh, a Smith shirt. Yes, I'm going to wear a Smith shirt on top <laughs> of a Smith shirt on top of a Smith shirt. <laughs> Too bad you don't have that black metal Morrissey shirt. He might be stoked on oh, that. Fuck yeah, that'd be awesome. So yeah, that's that. That was a good episode. Um. <laughs> It's late. We're actually recording this at uh, twelve thirty on on a, on a Sunday night. It's, yeah, it's still or, Sunday. We're on a Monday morning. It's, sti- way. it's still Sunday. Um, it's late, and yeah. we're both tired. Yeah, but let's just say thank you for listening. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for checking us out. Go rate, review, and subscribe on uh, on iTunes and download, download, download. I'm not stressed that enough. Yeah, and as I said, I just recently did a guest spot on Nightmare Junkheads, so go check that out. Go check them out. Check out the whole what, what's the name of that pod- podcasting? I think it's the Phantom. Phantom. Yeah, a lot of great podcasts on there. Go check them out. The, our friends, the Final Girls, are on there. Yeah. Um, we speaking of podcast networks, the Cinepunks family recently grew by two. Uh, we have got me a movie with uh, Andrew and Laurie Bergeron, Bergatron, however we'll call him. Bajeron. Bajeron. Bagalon. And then we have uh, Bagaboo. Yeah, ba- yeah, Andrew and Laurie Bagaboo. <laughs> got me a movie. It's a great podcast. And then um, Black Sun Dispatches with Brendan Foley. Check that out. Check both these things out. Yeah, I really liked episode. They're so four. fucking good. Episode four, Black Sun Dispatches was really. Good. I'm still in episode three. Dude, you gotta catch up. So go to Cinepunks, Cinepunks.com. Check out all of all the podcasts we do. We have a Patreon yep. page. Yep. Uh, if you want to, this will always Patreon. be Patreon. Patreon. I don't know. I think it's Patreon. It's Patreon. Yeah. I mean, know. this stuff will. These episodes will always be free. But you know, if you want to help us out a little bit, throw us a little bit of money. Paterfamilias. That yes, <laughs> we'll appreciate it greatly. We'll send you some cool shit. So um, yeah. Until next time, uh, stay spoopy, and I'll see you soon. Bye. Ha, ha, ha.